you're able, please stand with me and take out your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our reading this morning will be the first 11 verses. First Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law course? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, this is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Before we look at God's word together, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we love you. We love your word. The fact that you loved us first. In response May we have ears to hear, and me the, the ability to communicate your truth for your glory. Amen. Um, I want to remind us from the introduction of our study um, of this First Corinthians that um, as the church is Christ's church. Um, it is not a human institution. It is not a human organization, but rather a living organism. It is the body of Christ birthed by the gospel of Christ. And therefore, is to be defined and governed by the gospel. Growing together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ until the gospel permeates every aspect of our lives together as the church of Christ. It's like taking a clear pitcher of water, you know those child science projects they have, take a clear pitcher of water and squeeze into it a single drop of, of deep blue food coloring. And you watch it spread throughout until the entire pitcher of water turns blue. That is how the church is to be with the gospel. Coloring every facet of his church. Coloring every facet of our lives together as his church. Um, we are the pitcher. The water is our life together. And the gospel is the coloring that God intends every part of our lives to be colored with. Do we get the picture of the picture? So that no matter where you look with regard to our life together as his church, whatever it is, wherever it may be, 
whatever the situation is that may arise, the gospel has gotten there or is getting there. There is no area to which the gospel does not speak with its transforming power within his church. When the gospel permeates the body like that, what do you have? A very healthy church. A very healthy church. The most powerful weapon in the hand of Almighty God for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his weapon of choice for the expanse of his kingdom is a healthy local church. Amen. Made up of healthy members, a community of believers who have covenanted together to follow Christ. That living organism in Christ is his most powerful weapon. And I use weapon language because it is a violent advance. It is a violent advance. The kingdom of heaven is taking enemy territory from Satan and his minions. It's not physical warfare, but it is indeed spiritual warfare. And a healthy local church is the most powerful weapon wielded in the hand of God. Now, you should be getting the sense by now that the Corinthian church was not a healthy church. They were selfishly clinging to their old worldly ways, worldly wise ways in their eyes. They were not allowing the gospel to permeate every aspect of life together as his church. Now, we all understand there are no perfect churches, amen? There's no such thing as a perfect church, but churches can indeed be gospel healthy. They can be gospel healthy. They must be gospel healthy. So the kind of issues that the Corinthians were facing are still among us today. So we need this timeless wisdom as we work our way through this incredible epistle. The, the corruption of the human heart is essentially the same. And, and the call of God towards unity and holiness for his people is indeed the same. So by clinging here to, to their worldly, wise ways, um, the Corinthians are robbing themselves of unity, holiness, graciousness, purity, and joy. And more than all of that, they are robbing God of glory in Corinth. Chapter after chapter of dysfunction. Thus far, what have we seen? Factionalism within. Party lines within the church. Um, syncretism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ and philosophy. Pornea, sexual immorality within the church. That is an incestuous relationship and the lack of church discipline. Reminded as we were last time, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Therefore, Paul says, remove the man. Any church that does not practice church discipline, quite simply, is not a church. Okay, now Paul turns his attention to another area. People in the church are taking one another to court carrying their quarrels into the civil courts. And again, the church is not intervening. Now, apparently, it seems 
as though one brother, we'll call him brother A, had defrauded another brother in business, we'll call him brother B, and um, he swindled or defrauded him somehow. So brother B, that is the cheated brother, um, takes brother A to court in, in front of the Corinthian authorities. That is in front of pagans for restitution. And speaking to their shame, verse 6, they air their dirty laundry before unbelievers and are being a terrible witness to what they're supposed to be as the church. Now, Paul, Paul is at his wit's end with these Corinthians. And at this point, he's very sharp. He's, he's rather abrupt expressing his frustration here by way of a series of rhetorical questions. And they're really a, a series of veiled rebukes. So he's not seeking information when he raises, I think there's nine questions here, okay? So instead, he, he wants to reprimand them in their still very pagan ways. Question number one, verse one. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In other words, he reaffirms the principle he laid out in chapter 5, and that is you are responsible to exercise discipline within the church of Jesus Christ. Church leadership Dare. Now, now, dare is in the emphatic position here. The first word in the Greek text, this is where the emphasis falls, is the, the word translated dare. Telmao, dare. So he says, dare any of you to have the goal, likely some financial dispute, dare to go to court before the pagans. Okay, this is Christian against Christian, contact, Christian against Christian. Before the unrighteous, before the unrighteous, is that's what you do? You dare to do that? Answer, yes. Some of them were daring to do that. Some of them had the goal to do that. Now, the implication may be taking your dispute before a corrupt court system run by corrupt people instead of fellow believers. You know, Jews, back in the day, were to avoid pagan courts altogether following the instruction given by Moses um, in the passage, for example, that we read from Deuteronomy chapter 1. And Christians, to this day, are to bring such disputes before the saints and not the pagans. In order to live in peace within the church and, and to be a beacon to those outside the church, okay? Now, let me say something at the outset. Paul is not saying that matters of criminal law ought to be kept quiet and handled internally. He's not saying that. He's not suggesting, for instance, that embezzlement, um, abuse, or matters of that nature should be kept out of the courts of law. I mean, after all, we do background checks for everyone who serves in children's ministry here for a reason. You may be redeemed, repentant, but if you have any violation in the past against a child, you will not serve in children's ministry. Okay? So, uh, Paul, as a matter of fact, invoked um, his legal rights as a Roman citizen. And remember, he appealed. He appealed to the courts of justice to stand before Caesar. That was his right to do so. Um, he tells us in Romans 13, for instance, that the civil magistrate is God's minister. The government is God's minister whom he has ordained and, and appointed for our good. Therefore, the government does not bear the sword in, in vain. Okay, so he's not saying that. But Paul will not condone Christians taking one another to court because of personal disputes. He'll have, he'll not have it. Not in Christ's church. 
So evidently, um, the Corinthians, as, as Kelvin suggests, they, they had, and I'm quoting, an excessive eagerness for litigation, and this arose out of greed. Greed. So out of greed of, of some within this body arose lawsuits against the brethren, suing one another in order to gain some fundamental something. And they're wreaking havoc in the church. So, God's word, of course, describes greed. It's, it's kind of it's, it, it, excessive um, eagerness, and it reveals itself through, you know, I want, I want, I must have. It reveals itself as, as, as I've been victimized. It reveals itself as I have rights. It reveals itself, I will sue you. Sound familiar? America, America. <laughs> so th this virus of greed infected the church of Corinth. This, this virus of greed um, affects many Christians in our day, um, living as we do in a very litigious society. Um, that is to, to be um, unreasonably prone um, to lawsuits, um, to settle disputes, even amongst believers. And again, that's the context. So this may not seem shocking to us because of the culture in which we live, but it was to Paul. Stunned. So he continues here now his series of questions, and in this section, he appeals to, several times, he appeals to eschatology. Eschatology means last things. The eschaton is the very last thing. So eschatology, last things, that's what he appeals to. And that is, with a view to the end, a view of the end, in order here to undergird his ethical argument regarding the situation at hand. Right? Because our view of the future, our view as Christians of the future, should impact our perspective, and our conduct in this present age. Amen? So our certainty of the future as Christians should indeed govern our view, our demeanor, and our behavior in the present. That's his argument. So Paul sees the church, no doubt, is the last day's community who are part of the new creation of our Lord Jesus Christ, participants, representatives of the inaugurated kingdom of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only did the Corinthians misunderstand their lives in this world, they misunderstood our exalted future in the next. So verses 2 and 3 we're provided a glimpse into our future. Notice, verse 2. Or, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? That's an argument from the greater to the lesser. This is the main point of the text. Eschatological fact number one, saints, believers, will judge the world. You're saying, wait a minute, that's a contradiction to, contradiction to chapter 5, where Paul said, we don't judge the world, we judge those within. The context there in chapter 5 is judgment of the world in the here and now. The context here is judgment of the world in the end. And because of our union with Jesus Christ, we will judge with him on his throne. I read earlier from Revelation chapter 3, we opened the service, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In Matthew 19, Jesus said to the disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. So we share in this judgment. Verse 3, do you not know? Do you not know, Corinthians, that we will judge 
angels? How much more matters of this life? Eschatological, eschatological fact number two, believers will judge angels. What does that mean? Well, one thing's for certain. We will judge fallen angels. Romans 16, verse 20, we read, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen? That is that we're going to share with Christ in in pulling the trigger, so to speak, in in casting Satan and the demons into the lake of fire. It's pretty exciting stuff. (laughs) Now, since it doesn't say which angels that we will judge, and and good angels have nothing to be judged about, we must take note of the fact that the word judge is also used synonymously with the word rule. Okay, so um, in our resurrected, glorified state in Christ, we will no longer be made a little lower than the angels, but we will, I think, rule over them with Christ because they're subordinate to Christ, and we're in Christ, they'll be subordinate to us. Perhaps it means that, probably means both. Do you not know you will judge angels? (laughs) You can't handle matters of this life? What's the matter with you, says Paul? Amongst yourselves, church of Jesus Christ, in whom the gospel is to permeate all facets of life. So, verse 4, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Or as the ESV puts it, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This is very difficult to translate, actually, from the Greek, so you'll see many different translations of it. The NIV kind of gives the idea um, that you could choose even the humblest believer, somebody with no great reputation within, to do the job. What's the matter? (laughs) The least of the esteemed in the church, appoint them to the matter. Don't go to pagans. Now, one thing is for certain, and that is that that the the Corinthians um, are are submitting these disputes, personal disputes, to those who are outside the church who do not have the mind of Christ. But you do. Now, this is not a question whether the secular justice system is is incompetent to judge. He's not talking about that. The point is, if we're going to judge the world with Christ, right? We're going to judge the world with Christ. Shouldn't we be able to settle our own personal disputes? Of course, we can and we should. That's what he's saying. Okay, so thus far, everything um, Paul has said comes by way of questions, rhetorical questions. Until verse 5, we have the first um, indicative of the paragraph. Um, I say this to your shame. Hey, that's his purpose, to shame them. I say this to your shame, and it's followed by more Pauline sarcasm. Is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide but between his brethren. How do we know that sarcasm? Well, that's humorous. Um, it's humorous irony if we go back and look at what he said in chapter 4 and verse 10, where there was dripping sarcasm. We, okay, remember, we suffering apostles, we're fools for Christ. But, oh, you Corinthians, oh, you're wise. Oh, you're so wise in Christ. Woo. You know, we're weak, but, ooh, you're, you're strong. Here... Wait a minute, you can't find one wise person among the mighty, wise Corinthians to judge the matter? You ought to be ashamed. Isn't he great? Verse 6, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers Really? Question number seven. Paul is shocked that a brother would bring another member of the church into the secular court system to sue them, and then he sternly reproves them. 
This must stop. Notice very, very directly here. Verse 7, actually then, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. It's already a defeat. Whatever the outcome of the legal process, taking a brother to secular court is a defeat for you, church. There are no winners in such cases, church. Because both parties are bringing shame to the name of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. I say it to your shame. It's already defeat for you. So the church in Corinth uh, most certainly has gospel amnesia, amen. The gospel's not permeating their lives. Um, Their identity in Christ has ceased to function in any meaningful way, whether it has to do with their thinking or their living. The fact that they were brothers and sisters. It's to your defeat. So the fact that they're brothers and sisters drives questions number eight and nine. First to the plaintiff. Verse 7b, why not rather be wronged, plaintiff? Why not rather be defrauded, plaintiff? Okay, Paul's ultimate argument, forget your rights. Why not rather suffer being wronged, church? Counterintuitive, amen? Countercultural, Amen. These are two questions that absolutely rub us all the wrong way. Amen? Do they not? Why not be wronged? We answer because I was right. Why not be defrauded? We answer because it was mine. But it's utter defeat for the church, says Paul. See, Paul's saying this. Look, I'll tell you a better solution than going to court before unbelievers. Just be wronged. Okay, rather than losing your testimony before pagans, which is your defeat, just be defrauded. That's what he's saying. So, so Paul's, Paul's questions totally chafe against my Adamic nature. rubs me the wrong way, my flesh, the wrong way. Instead of suffering loss of witness, loss of testimony for Christ, why not instead suffer monetary loss, plaintiff? You know, considering lawsuits... Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if someone wants to sue you and take, take your cloak, let him have your tunic as well. In other words, he says, settle it out of court and give him what he wants and then some. Does that rub you the wrong way? In the spirit? No. In the flesh? Yeah. So for Paul here, it would be better to be wronged than to risk dividing the body of Jesus Christ and and by taking personal disputes here before unbelievers and and blowing your testimony as the church. You know, perhaps, thinking about this this week, perhaps an unwillingness to suffer monetary loss instead of loss of our witness for Jesus Christ is because we value money more than our witness. Possessions more than our testimony. Or we value our rights more than our witness. And here's one. In our day, this is a biggie. Perhaps we value our happiness more than our witness. Another blown witness in our day before the watching world 
shows up in divorce courts. Where today, just as many Christians are being divorced as pagans, the stats tell us. Irreconcilable differences? Where's that in the Bible? Well, God wants me to be happy. Where's that in the Bible? That's not a biblical reason. You know, what happened to for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer? Why not give up one's perceived rights and temporal happiness rather than destroying your witness before the watching world? That's the question in our day. You know, some Christians have been wronged in their lives, and they've never let it go. They just won't let it go. So they're bitter, they're they're hateful, and uh, their bitterness oftentimes shows up directed towards others, sometimes even God's own people, talking about Christians here. Their bitterness shows up towards, towards fellow believers or pastors. That's an easy target. But really... They're bitter towards God. If you're bitter, take out the I, put in an E, and you'll get better. If the focus is on me, the I, remove it. You must, because bitterness ultimately is is directed towards God. So, many in our day have gospel amnesia as well. The Corinthians have gospel amnesia. Already a defeat for them, verse 7. It blows their witness, and the Corinthians, it seems, never considered their witness because so many of them were swept up by pagan practices, consumed by by cultural norms of the day and, and not the gospel. Many Americans, too, are consumed when they begin to just float downstream with the culture rather than testing all things with the gospel. Dangerous, yeah, as far as our our witness goes, at least. So in verse 8, he moves from addressing um, the plaintiff you know, to to those, I'm doing the wrong, verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So while some are engaged in wrongdoing, obviously others are are victims of of cheating and fraud in the church. You know, my, my uncle who led my father to the Lord, he was 21 years senior, my father, he was a missionary after World War II in, in, in the bush in the Philippines and I think in Vietnam. And he came back in the 70s and, and eventually you know, he, God used him to lead his little brother, my dad, to the Lord. And he went out and got a PhD and he, he served in ministry the rest of his life. And someone defrauded him for his retirement money from the church. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yes, I can. What a defeat, verse 7. What what a shame, verse 5. You who will one day serve as judges over the cosmos together with the chief judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, all these things ought not to be done in his church. And then, in verses 9 and 10, Paul lobs an eschatological bomb. <laughs> as a very, and he uses it as a very serious warning. He, he makes here a very pointed statement, speaking in, in such a way so as to imply that the characteristic behaviors that he's about to mention excludes people from the kingdom of God. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom 
of God. Let me pause for a moment. Um, Verses 9 through 11, we usually quote separated from this context. It's not that we misuse it, but often we divorce it from the context of Christians suing each other. That is greedily defrauding one another. So regarding this vice list, verses 9 and 10, you know, we'll say amen to those nasty sins, fornicators, homosexuals, effeminate. But Paul wants them to see that just as sure as fornicators, homosexuals, the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom, if this indeed characterizes you, if this defines you, this is who you are, you will not inherit the kingdom in its consummation. Nor will swindlers, coveters, or the greedy. Oof. Okay, so not only the gross immorality that we saw back in chapter 5 and, you know, rampant homosexuality and all that goes with that, um, just the same, those characterized by greed and covetousness, beware. Beware. Now, he does not mean... Paul does not mean that Lord God Almighty is incapable of saving anyone who has committed these sins. Amen? It's not as though they are entirely outside of his regenerating grace. But those who remain impenitent, that that are defined by the things listed here, yet they claim to be Christian, they will not enter the kingdom because they're not part of the kingdom. This, in other words, is an eschatological wake-up call for the church of Corinth. So he uses verses 9 through 11 also as a call to repentance, to remind them of their true new identity. Notice he goes on to say, Such were, 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 were some of you. You're no longer that. Okay, and and notice, such, okay, that's inclusive to the whole group. Such were some of you, and the gospel is not coloring your lives as it should, culture is. So just like Corinth, we too live in a highly swindleized, highly sexualized culture. Amen? Crooked business deals. Cheaty, cheating, greedy litigations take place in courts each and every day. Sex before or outside of marriage, commonplace. In culture, yeah? Pornography available on phones and in homes. Homosexuality in in, in gay marriage is celebrated and and applauded as noble and, and normal. But Christians called into the kingdom by God through the gospel are called to abstain from sexual relations until marriage. Adultery is not only sin, but highly destructive. Pornography. It's a gateway into other sins, addictions, and psychological trauma. Not to be tolerated as normal and accepted in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the world does. That's what the world calls normal. We don't adopt and call things normal that God calls abnormal. We don't define what love is. He does. We don't define what's loving. He does. The word of God declares homosexuality is not only a sin against God's law, but also a sin against nature. 
And that's why the guilt that is attached to it runs so deep. It's contrary to, to nature, to that which is normal, to that which is natural. And though the world calls it natural and normal, the church must not. Now, we don't judge them. Amen? But if someone is in that kind of a relationship with the church, we must carry out discipline, call for correction, repentance. Because such were some of you. Now, this unnatural sin, by the way, had swept like cancer through the Greek world, through the Greek life, invaded Rome. Many Roman emperors practiced this very unnatural vice. Nero murdered his wife and married a boy. True story. Who reminded him of his wife that he murdered. Just perversion all over the place. See, this is the kind of society in which the early church was born and lived. This is not unique to the 21st century, my friends. <sighs> Do we understand this? They're living it. Now, let me say this. Such sins as listed here in verses 9 and 10 are not unpardonable sins. This is the outworking of original sin. These kind of sins are the outworking of original sin. Therefore, when someone entrapped by this lifestyle says, I was born this way, truth be told, as Rosaria Butterfield, a such were some of you, former lesbian says, lesbian feminist says, former, we're all born distorted by sin in one way or another. In one way or other. Amen? So I take this from a transcript of a 2015 testimony that Rosaria gave at a Ligonier conference. You can find it on Ligonier.org. She said this, quote, the proof of conversion is a heart changed by Jesus. Yeah. You know, citing Romans 6, 4, we, we are redeemed having been buried with Christ through baptism into death. She went on to say, and I quote, we are no longer slaves to the sin that once defined us. Although it likely still knows our names and addresses. Okay? She went on to say this. So what does a person like me do with her past? Former, feminist, lesbian. Well, Rosario goes on to say, I have not forgotten the flowing contours of my past. Body memories still know my name. Details intrude into my world somewhat unpredictably. When I'm homeschooling my children, memories invade my mind, or even kneading the communion bread that I make every week. And I take every ancient token to the cross for prayer, for more repentance, and for thanksgiving that God is always right about matters of sin and grace. Always right. So such were some of you. Such were some of us. He's right about sin. He's right about grace. So Paul tells us that there are people in God's kingdom whose past lives were defined by those things mentioned in verses 9 through 10. That's not an exhaustive list, by the way. What about murders? Such were. What about someone who murders someone and they're in life in prison? Such were. They're in Christ? Such were. Saved. What about the son of Sam who murdered numerous people and threw all of New York City into fear and now professes to be a Christian? Such were. Saved. Bound for heaven. Bound for glory. So they've turned from their evil ways 
resting in Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit of God in Christ, teaching us that there should be former thieves, former greedy swindlers, former adulterers, former homosexuals, former blasphemers, former drunkards, um, revilers, the verbally abusive people in our congregation because repentance is the fruit of, fruit of, salvation. Such were some of you, he says to the Corinthians. The church of Jesus Christ, who were not allowing the gospel to permeate all facets of their life. So he has to remind them of their identity, their new identity. You stumble, you fall, you don't lay there, you get up, remember who you are, and get on and march in. So the church of Jesus Christ must never close its door to any sinner who repents, regardless of their background, who repents, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the kingdom is open to them because it consists of them. Such were, amen, some of you. That's the gospel we proclaim. That's the gospel that we herald from here, that it declares there is no sin and no sinner so vile that cannot be redeemed by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. No sin so vile. No sinner so vile. Because there, there, there is a court trial coming. There's no escape from its judgment. It's called the last day. If you are characterized by one of these things, you're just a pagan, uh, a garden variety pagan who does not believe. You're an agnostic, but I would never do that stuff. Okay, you're already condemned. The call is to repent. Call upon this Lord, one and only Savior. Repent of unbelief. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ. Receive his forgiveness now. Because today is the day of salvation. So you come by faith now where you sit before the living God and you'll soon find out that you were once one of those. So the, the, the text plainly states that as far as the Bible's concerned, our Lord Jesus Christ has the power to transform human nature and human conduct, right? Notice verse 11. So, such were some of you, but, big but, you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That is, you have an enlivened, regenerated heart. Your disposition has been transformed. New creature in Christ. So that, that former fallen heart has been removed and a spiritually alive heart has been put in. That's regeneration. Or we, we call it being born again. Literally born from above. So he, notice he contrasts what they were with what they now are. Now you're washed, forgiven. You're sanctified, set apart, holy, and you're justified, reckoned as righteous before God. He deems you righteous. Because you're in Christ, he sees you as Christ. <sighs> By way of your union with Christ. Because the death of Jesus removes all guilt and shame and sin, and his perfect righteousness is imputed through faith. Beautiful. Message never gets old, does it? Okay? So that's the good news. And to wrap up, this passage also teaches we confess to be a Christian, we love our sin, we remain in it unrepentantly, and it characterizes us, it defines us and the gospel does not define us we're not redeemed but we are deceived be not deceived 
Do you not know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. So, verses 9 through 11 function, okay, in the flow of this chapter, in the context of what we just read, something like this. So you, swindler, greedy, thieves, revilers, um, I'm worried about your soul, says the Apostle Paul. I'm worried about whether you're actually um, a Christian or not. I wonder. I'm very concerned about that. Now, you, you may win the case in court down here, You may get away with it, whatever it is, but God sees everything. So I'm concerned that you're not going to look too good on judgment day. (laughs) It's a call for repentance. Because what's far more important than whether or not you win the case or not is what's really going on in your soul. Professing Christian in Corinth. So being in Christ, needless to say, we must break away from pagan waves as Christians, break away from heathen tendencies and allow the gospel to color every aspect of our lives together as the church because it's his church. Amen? This is not a human institution. This is a living organism of God's people, temple made without hands. And that makes for a very healthy local church made up of gospel-healthy members. Amen? The most powerful weapon in the hand of Almighty God for the spread of His gospel. It is the healthy local church. So for us, fellow brothers and sisters, may our eschatology, our understanding of last things, drive our present lives. Our certainty of the future should govern our view, our views, plural, our demeanor, and our life together in the here and now, and what our witness is before a watching world, a gospel-healthy church. Amen? We'll turn our attention now to the Lord's table. I'll close in prayer, and we will proceed. Father, we do thank you for your word, for this reminder, for this glorious hope, this absolute certainty for all who are in Christ. For any who are not, who came in here outside, I pray that you would bring them in, into the kingdom by way of your Holy Spirit. Give them new hearts, new eyes, new minds to understand that they indeed have been washed, sanctified, because they're justified, declared free in Christ. For his glory, amen.